are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, February 24th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Coming up after the BBC headlines, a state task force meets to decide who would qualify for race-based reparations. In the wake of fraud at the Employment Development Department, some are asking, is facial recognition tech necessary, and what happens when it gets hacked? KVMR News Director Claudio Mendonca interviews the president of the Nevada Union Teachers Association about today's school closure. After weather, we end with an essay from Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. California's Reparations Task Force is meeting today, and its members are expected to make an important decision. Who would qualify to receive reparations? Would it be a lineage-based program for descendants of those who were enslaved in the United States prior to the Civil War and abolition? Or would reparations be allowed to a broader set of Black Americans who were affected by the historical legacy of slavery and its long-term economic and social effects? A reparations meeting yesterday focused on past reparations efforts. The nine-member task force also looked at possible legal implications and heard from UC Berkeley Law Dean Erwin Chemerinsky. He spoke about how the U.S. Supreme Court might view race-based reparations. The task force is expected to submit a first report to the state legislature this summer. Santa Clara County's leaders are working on an ordinance to prohibit the possession and manufacture of ghost guns. The move follows some California cities that have passed local bans. The plastic and metal home-assembled guns have no serial numbers, making them untraceable by law enforcement. Santa Clara County District Attorney Jeff Rosen says the county has seen a dramatic increase in the use of these weapons. Including shootings, violent drug dealings, robberies, and drug trafficking. In 2015, we recovered four ghost guns in our county. Last year, 293. Earlier this week, three people were charged with running a ghost gun factory in Santa Clara County. Rosen is working with county supervisors to craft an ordinance stronger than the state law. Crime victims and family members rallied in Sacramento Wednesday, urging lawmakers to back legislation, making it easier for them to access financial support. Advocates say bureaucratic obstacles and eligibility requirements can discourage crime victims from even trying to get the compensation they're due. A bill from State Senator Nancy Skinner could remove some of those barriers. Tanish Hollins is with the group Californians for Safety and Justice. People who have not been acknowledged, people who have never been seen or treated as victims, deserve to be helped. The proposed legislation would also increase financial compensation for people who are exonerated. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. 
As California has fought the pandemic, the state's Employment Development Department has grappled with how to effectively combat fraud while still doing right by Californians who need its services. Earlier this week, the agency once again faced this conundrum at a state assembly hearing. KQED's Mary Franklin Harvin explains. One of the main focuses of the hearing was EDD's use of biometric data to verify applicants' identities and the money it's spending on those contracts. We recommend withholding action specifically on the contract for identity verification with the contractor ID.me. Chaz Alamo works for the nonpartisan Legislative Analyst's Office. And ID.me, in essence, confirms that an applicant is who they say they are by using artificial intelligence to match a video or a photo that the applicant takes to the, typically a driver's license that they upload to the website. EDD started using the ID.me service in October of 2020, the month before the agency would announce that it had paid out hundreds of millions in fraudulent claims to accounts linked to California jails and prisons. At the hearing, EDD's director said while the agency is still using facial recognition tech, it's considering following the lead of the IRS, which announced this week it would no longer require people to use biometric data to access their online accounts. But how did we get here in the first place? The big question that you need to be asking is what was wrong with the previous system? What is wrong with multi-factor identification? What wasn't working before? India McKinney is the Director of Federal Affairs at the San Francisco-based nonprofit digital rights group, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. EDD, meet EFF. What McKinney means is, why is all the information that we used to be able to use to prove we are who we say we are seemingly not good enough anymore for many government agencies? You know, you have your social security number, which you've had to provide in order to get unemployment in the first place. You have a whole bunch of other state-issued documentation. There's a whole bunch of multi-factor identification tools that don't require somebody to have a forward-facing camera, Wi-Fi, broadband, and turn it over their biometric identification to a third-party private company. When I interviewed Blake Hall, the CEO of ID.me, in early 2021, the company and identity theft were both really having a moment. With our network right now, we have 39 million Americans. We add a million every 13 days. Um, it's, it's quite clear that our model of empowering consumers is the appropriate one. Hall said countless dark web scammers were gathering and hawking bundles of demographic data, and lots of people were using them to file fake unemployment claims. Literally the last line of defense that is preventing a lot of Californians from being victims of identity theft is this face match step, which verifies that that face is actually like the face of the person going through and it matches the photo on the government ID. But it's hard to weigh the savings of the identity fraud prevented against the costs of the data we've had to provide to bolster these fraud fighting efforts. There are often cited concerns about algorithms incorporating the racial biases of their creators, which Hall says IDME has taken great pains to prevent against for the record. But McKinney says, If they worked 100% of the time for 100% of the people, we would still object to the way that they're being used in this way. And that's because we are not set up either at the federal level or at the state level to deal with biometric identity theft. McKinney says she's concerned states are outsourcing these services to avoid having to reinforce their own infrastructures. 
I think one of the things that California needs to do, as well as the federal government, is there needs to be a modernization of a lot of the systems that they're using. And governments, she says, still have more built-in public oversight than corporations like IDME. For The California Report, I'm Mary Franklin Hartman. And that is The California Report for Thursday, February 24th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. If you get your health care coverage for Medi-Cal, possible rule changes could lead to disenrollment. California News Service has this warning. The rules for staying on Medi-Cal are expected to change this summer, and millions could lose health coverage if they don't stay on top of the paperwork, according to a new report from Georgetown University. The federal government is expected to declare the end of the public health emergency in July, which will trigger an end to the requirement that all states provide continuous coverage for all people on Medicaid or Medi-Cal as it is known here. Kristen Golden-Testa with the Children's Partnership says the state will start to redetermine everyone's eligibility as their renewal dates come up. Over the last two and a half years, people have moved, even within the state, and so the Medicaid program may not know where they are, and so they'll send the renewal packet to their last address, and if they don't get a response because the family's not there, they may be disenrolled. So it's super important that everybody update their address with the Medicaid program. People can contact the Medi-Cal specialists at their county offices to request an address change. Many families who may now make too much to qualify for Medi-Cal will be eligible for state-subsidized health plans under Covered California. Professor Tricia Brooks with Georgetown University says states need to clear out their backlogs now and make every attempt to track people down before dropping their health coverage. States should also enhance processes to follow up with enrollees via multiple communication modes when action is required to avoid a loss of coverage. The report estimates that as many as 6.7 million children nationwide are at risk of losing coverage. Medi-Cal serves 14 million Californians, including 5 million children. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Nevada Joint Union High School was closed for instruction today when a number of teachers chose not to work due to a change in campus rules about masking. The district administration announced Monday that starting Tuesday, it would relax enforcement of student mask usage. Tuesday evening, the District Board of Trustees voted to support the action. This afternoon, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza spoke to Eric Mayer, NU physics teacher and president of the Nevada Joint Union High School Teachers Association. Mr. Mayor, today, Kelly Roden, principal of Nevada Union High School, announced that Nevada Union High School would be closed today due to teacher absences. Could you tell me a bit more about the situation? So I, I will start with saying that this is not an organized action, that this is individual teachers expressing their frustration with how the decision went down with the board on Tuesday. We have an MOU with them that says we will, our district will make decisions about COVID protocols based on public health and safety guidelines. And they just violated the entire collective bargaining process in doing that. So that's what this is about. This is not about masking itself. It's not about even COVID protocols overall, but this is about the collective bargaining process and honoring our contract and collective agreements. 
the message that I have heard loud and clear from members is that the board's action to decide not to enforce the state mandate puts teachers in an impossible position where we are left to either defy our district, our boss, or defy the law, which puts our credentials at risk. Our credentials are given by the state and are contingent on us upholding the law. Could you talk about what the enforcement mechanism for something like that would be if the state were to decide that teachers are in violation and therefore, you know, take steps to take credentials away? How, how would that work? What would that look like? And has that ever happened in your knowledge? The way it was explained to me, and this is coming from the California Department of Public Health, is that teachers are responsible for doing that, for upholding the law like that. And our, our credential is on the line. So if we receive complaints that we don't do that, then they can take away our, our license, our ability to do our job. It was also explained to me that we could be liable for civil suits because of our not enforcing the law. If something happens under our care to these students, then we are thereby liable for that. District Superintendent Brett McFadden has said that refusal to comply to the mandate by students and parents and the lack of a mechanism to enforce the mandate has become, quote, untenable. What are your thoughts about that statement? Um, I don't think it is our job to decide how it is enforced, but we do need support from the district to say that we will enforce the law because we are liable for it. Should the state contact one or all of these teachers for not upholding mask protocols? How would the Teachers Association respond? Are there steps in place to respond to something like that? Because this has been kind of a movement by school districts to preempt a state law, we've been promised by CTA Legal that we would be represented, but we don't want to risk it. We don't want to put our jobs and safety of our students at risk by not following the guidance of public health experts. You've said that teachers are upset about what they see as a violation of their of contract and the collective bargaining process. Could you elaborate on that, please? Some of the terms of our contract and of this MOU are that when the state revises those guidelines, we will meet. I'm sorry, can I interrupt? Yeah. Could you, instead of saying MOU, could you declare what that is? A lot of our listeners won't know what that is. And I do apologize for interrupting. An MOU is sort of a temporary contract. Um, It's meant to expire at a certain date. So we have an MOU about COVID protocols that we thought, you know, we had ended in June and we had to revisit that this year. So part of that contract, and it is a legal contract, is agreed to by both sides. And we we construct those terms in a collective bargaining process. So the terms of the contract are very clear by design. And for this one in particular, that we will follow state and public health guidelines because they are the experts on that. We are not. So another provision of that is that when those guidelines change, we will renegotiate the terms of the contract. And the guidance from those organizations has not changed. The board choosing this unilaterally, um, teachers weren't consulted, public health wasn't consulted. You know, our one 
medical practitioner employed by the district wasn't consulted. So, so this jumps that whole process of collective bargaining. And you've said that this is not an official union action. Are there any plans being made to transition towards an official union action? We are grieving this, which I guess, again, I should define as a union action where that's an official process to say, hey, you're not following the contract. This is what you need to do to fix it. We are talking with the district and hoping to involve the board in in how we can come back together and fix that. All right. I've been speaking with Nevada Joint Union High School Teachers Association President Eric Mayer. Mr. Mayer, thank you very much for speaking with us here at KVMR. I do want to make sure and add that we want to repair and restore the relationship with the board. We need that as an organization in this community. We have a duty to serve this community, and that requires repairing the the trust that was broken. KVMR was not able to reach District Superintendent Brett McFadden today for comment. The full interview with Eric Mayer is available on the kvmr.org website as a podcast. Turning to regional weather, mostly sunny days will continue with near or below freezing conditions Friday and Saturday mornings. Temperatures are expected to start warming closer to normal on Saturday into early next week. A chance of showers pops up in the forecast for the middle of next week. This evening, in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with a low of 34. Sunny and slightly warmer Friday, with a high of 54 and a low of 36. In Truckee tonight, clear with a low of 4 degrees. Friday in Truckee, sunny with a high of 35 and a low of 5. In Sacramento this evening, mainly clear with a low of 29. Friday in Sacramento, mostly sunny with a high of 62 and a low of 30. now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. I can never remember whether we're supposed to bake things for longer at this altitude than the recipe says, or less long. I've only lived here for 25 years, and I've baked something at least once a month, except in the summer when it's too hot to turn on the stove. My grandmother, born in 1906, baked every day. She didn't believe in buying things you can make. She also didn't believe in going to anyone's house for dinner without zucchini bread or a tin of homemade oatmeal cookies as a hostess gift. She lived on Cape Cod, so altitude adjustments weren't involved. When was the last time you said hostess gift in a sentence? Which is, of course, class-related. I don't say it either, but I certainly heard it growing up. We were admonished regularly to say hello or goodbye and thank you to the hostess when arriving at or leaving someone's house. The host could go suck eggs, apparently. He never got any credit, and perhaps rightly so, since all men did in the 50s in this demographic was mix cocktails and earn money. The women deserved all the credit for inviting the guests, wrapping Chinese water chestnuts in bacon, making deviled eggs, and emptying cans of oversalted planters' peanuts into cute little wooden bowls. And that was just for a cocktail party, never mind beef wellington and baked Alaska. Plus, of course, cleaning the house before and afterward. My grandmother, being female, knew the score. 
We came from a class of people who did not employ cooks, although cleaning ladies arrived once or twice a week to help our mothers. This was useful, but it didn't save the woman of the house, who usually had four children under the age of seven, from tearing out her hair on the day of a party. People we knew had cooks or had their parties catered, and other people we knew never threw anything but potlucks, which in the 50s were considered quite bohemian. Anything the least bit innovative was called bohemian in a certain tone of voice, which meant you'd better not go there or be that way, or you were going to hear about it later. Code. I'm delighted to tell you I turned out entirely bohemian, but it took a while. Despite going to the right college and dating four different men who had the third at the end of their names, I managed to escape quite a bit of my class trajectory. As did some of those men. You can't judge a book by its cover. But we don't escape our families of origin completely, which is why I mentioned the altitude adjustment. The timer just rang, telling me the banana bread I'm making to take to a friend's house tonight might be ready. This is the recipe's timing from the good old bohemian Moosewood cookbook. According to my calculations, it will either be overdone, underdone, or perfect. I will write down which it is on page 193 so I know for the next time, breaking another class taboo that one not deface a book unless you're the author who is signing it. I don't know yet if this will be a hostess gift or eaten on the spot as potluck. Part of the fun of being bohemian is creating a sense of mystery. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, it's the Climate Report with host Martin Webb. Don't miss part two of the electric vehicle episode in which Martin explores the e-bike craze and asks, can we make cars obsolete? At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Then KVMR returns to the eclectic music you love, Jazz Workshop at 8 with Derek Washington, followed at 10 by Jive AF with Step D Luna. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street. Open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. And the Pizza Joint, offering New York-style pizza with fresh ingredients by the slice or pie, plus other Italian specialties, salads, and local beer. Open daily for takeout, Commercial Street, Nevada City. ThePizzaJointNC.com This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us tomorrow at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.